probably noticed that whenever I come up here and start uh, preaching, I start the timer on my cell phone. You've probably also wondered if sometimes I just ignore that the timer is there. I don't. Uh, But a moment ago, I just about got up here without it, and Jonah stopped me and handed it to me to make sure that I have it. So you could thank him for that. Because evidently he wants to make sure that uh, I'm not going to go longer than what um, I should be going. Look at Luke chapter 1 and verse number 1. Luke tells us a little bit about what he is seeking to accomplish as he writes this book about the life of our Lord. I want you to notice with me that in Luke chapter 1... And verse 1 and 2, Luke says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just um, as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered uh, them to us, it seemed to me good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. There are a couple of words here that I want us to zoom in on just for a moment. The first word is the word narrative in verse 1, and the second word is the word orderly, or you could just take it as a phrase at the end of verse 3, orderly account. The idea of what Luke is trying to get across is that Luke has taken these facts, these pieces of information that are absolutely true, And when Luke says that he is seeking to present an orderly account of this narrative, if you will, which is a word for story, if you will, or an account of the life of Jesus Christ, what he's saying is, I I have taken these, these facts and I have put them together in a way, and I've put them in to get together in a way to prove a point. You see, that's why we have differences between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not contradictions, but differences. Matthew seeks to highlight certain points, Mark certain points, Luke and John certain points as well. And as we well know, each one of the writers of these gospel accounts, they emphasize in different ways the work and the person of our Lord, of our Savior. So that being the case, Luke, for example, is not always interested in chronological order. Sometimes he removes things uh, out of chronological order, and he does that on purpose. But what we have to keep in mind as we look at Luke or Matthew or any book at all, when we're trying to summarize these books, when we're, when we're trying to pull out the main themes or the main ideas of these books, the reason why they're different, of course, is because the human writer, inspired of the Spirit, he wrote them the way that he did for a reason. He emphasized the points that he emphasized for a reason. He's trying to bring these things out to, our, uh, to the forefront of our minds so that we take notice of them. So Luke says, I have taken this narrative, this account of the life of Jesus, and I have placed all of these facts in an orderly arrangement, a systematic arrangement, 
for the purpose of convicting and convincing you that everything that Jesus said and did and everything that I've written here is absolutely true. To bring you to faith and to bring you to obedience to the gospel of the Son of God. So, all of that being said, tonight we look to our third word to help us summarize this book which really is our third theme or our third main emphasis that we find in the book of Luke. Our first is the word, do you remember, salvation. Because Luke wants us to understand that Jesus came into the world to be the Savior of all of the world, not just some of it. Uh, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Remember Luke 19 and verse number 10. The book begins with salvation. It is... is, um, Uh, proclaimed with the uh, coming of John and Jesus and the beginning of their ministries. And the book ends with salvation. Go to Jerusalem where you will be endued with power from on high, Luke 24, verse 47 to 49. And uh, you're going to go there, and when power comes on you from on high, you're going to be my witnesses, and you're going to preach the the, uh, message of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Salvation. Our second word is the word humanity. That's because Jesus refers to himself often as the Son of Man. It takes our mind back to Daniel chapter 7. It is a a description that uh, has to do with authority and with kingship. But also in the word humanity, we are reminded of the fact that Jesus was both God and man. And that like every human being cries and suffers and goes through difficulties and struggles in life, so Jesus did as well. But also in this book, we see highlighted the needs of all humanity and the fact that Jesus was sensitive to those needs, in meeting those needs, that he paid very special attention to the people who needed him the most, his humanity, if you will. Our third word this evening is a word that honestly is very easily overlooked. The word is translated from a Greek word that only consists of three letters. And the English word itself is only four letters, and it's only found 13 times in the New King James Version of the book of Luke. And the word is must, M-U-S-T. The word is must. Now, when you see this word in the way that Luke will use it in the passages that we'll look at tonight, what we have to understand about the word must is the importance of that word is found in what that word implies. Often, the word is translated not as must, but it is translated as, as it is necessary. I want to read to you a couple very quickly of definitions from some lexicons that I found that I thought were helpful. One says, this word, this must, it is necessary. When we see that word, it's talking about that which must necessarily take place, often with the implication of inevitability. Another one says, this word in the New Testament is normally normally an expression for the decree and especially of the plan of God. Catch that? This word, when it's used in the New Testament especially, is normally an expression for a decree or the plan of God. 
There's the key. That's why it's important. As we study through the book of Luke, we will notice 13 times, again, in the New King James Version, Jesus will say something about must. The Son of Man must suffer. I must preach the kingdom of God. I must be about my Father's business and several other passages as well. And every time he makes that statement, what he's really saying is, this is necessary. Why is it necessary? That's the question. That's what we want to try to wrap our minds around. Why is it necessary? According to the way that the scholars define the term, when Jesus says it is necessary, what he means is, I am doing something that is in accordance with the decree or with the plan of God. So what that tells us is that when Jesus says it is necessary that the Son of Man will suffer, it is necessary that I do this or I go there or I say this, what he's really telling us is God has a plan and I am submitting to that plan. More about that in just a few moments. Let's take some time now and let's look at some of these passages in the book of Luke. We won't have time to look at all 13 of them, but let's look at some of them and see how Jesus will use this word or this idea to describe himself and his purpose as the Son of God. Let's start in Luke 2, verse 49 and 50. This is the first time that the word is used. This is the famous occasion in which Jesus, as a young boy... He and his mother and his father, his fleshly father, Joseph, remember that they had been in Jerusalem. They had been there for the feast. His family had left to return home. Jesus stayed behind. And once they realized he was missing, they went back looking for him. And they found him in the temple amongst the scholars. And this is the question that was asked by his mother in verse 48, or by his mother and Joseph in verse 48, um, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And of course, every parent and grandparent can certainly uh, appreciate the sentiment of the passage. But look at Jesus' answer. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? So there is our word, first of all, our word must, which literally the idea is, it is necessary. Did you not know that it was necessary for me to be about my father's business? One interesting point about this is that when Jesus says, my father's business, this way of speaking about God has no parallels in any other place. No one before Jesus would speak about serving God in the way that Jesus speaks about serving God. He is my father, and don't you know that I must be about his business? But here's an interesting question. Why would Jesus ask them the question, why did you seek me, and say to them, did you not know? What things had happened in the life of Jesus up to this point that would make us think maybe they should have known? How about Luke 1, verse 26 to 33, or 34 to 38, or 39 to 56, or Luke 2, pretty much the whole chapter leading up to this point? 
all of the events surrounding the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. Remember how the angel came and spoke to Zechariah, John's father, and said, here's what's going to happen? And how an angel spoke to Mary and said, here's what's going to happen? And how uh, when Mary came to see Elizabeth, that uh, the babe leaped in Elizabeth's womb and Elizabeth spoke to Mary about who her son, her child was going to be. And then when Jesus is born, all of the events surrounding the birth and the angels that proclaim peace and goodwill to all men and not salvation is coming and salvation is here, all of those things... It's really interesting to me. In fact, it's one of the, the big head scratchers in my opinion, just to my own, in my own study. As I study through the life of Jesus and you wonder, how, what, what, did, what did they know? What did Mary and Joseph know? What did they see? How, did they, how, how much of this did they understand? How could they not have understood? You know, those kinds of questions come to mind. Evidently... They didn't understand very much because verse 50 says what? They didn't understand the statement that he spoke to them. When Jesus said, it is necessary for me to be about my father's business, certainly one of the things that he is implying is all of those things that happened surrounding my, uh, the announcement of my birth and my birth, those things should have, they, they should have been clues but for whatever reason, Mary and Joseph obviously had a hard time wrapping their minds around them. And when Jesus says, it's my father and I've got to be about his business, he's not talking about Joseph, of course. He's talking about God, the father. And he says, I know that I have to do his bidding. That's why I'm here. Jesus is a young boy. He's 12 years old and he already has an awareness of why he's here and what, he, what he's to be doing. It's necessary, he says. I have to be about my father's business. Look at chapter 4. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, Jesus begins his Galilean ministry. It's just after his temptation in the wilderness. And the first stop that he makes, uh, at least that's recorded for us in uh, some detail in the book of Luke, is in Nazareth, where he stands in the synagogue. He calls for the scroll. He reads from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2, and he says, this is it. This is me. This day, this reading, the, the, the passages that you've just read, they're fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah was talking about me, and you're seeing those things taking place right now. Well, they didn't receive him very well after that. We go to the end of the chapter, verse 42 and following. Jesus is preaching in Galilee, and here's what the scripture, here's how it ends. Here's how chapter 4 ends. When it was day, he departed, and he went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose have I been sent and he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. And so it was, chapter 5, verse 1, when the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and we'll stop right there. Whenever you see Jesus or anybody else in Scripture make some sort of statement about this is the reason why I'm saying or doing or whatever, take note of it. This is a purpose statement from the lips of our Savior in two ways. The first way is because here's our word again. I must, it is necessary. This word that implies conformity to the plan or to the will of God. I must preach and I must preach because this is why I'm here. 
This is the purpose for which I have been sent. Keep in mind that God communicates his will through preaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, The preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that are perishing, but to those who are saved it's the power of God. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to, uh, to uh, convict men and bring them to salvation. Uh, he's chosen preaching to save men. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 21. Acts 10 verse 36, another passage uh, also about preaching. The word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ that he is Lord of all. Now, when we think about the fact that God communicates his will through preaching, it shouldn't surprise us at all that Jesus would say, the reason that I am here is to preach. Think about what Jesus said in Luke 2, 49 and 50. I must, it's necessary for me to take care of my father's business. That's why I'm here. Listen, Jesus understood that it was necessary for him to proclaim that for which he was sent. Jesus understood that as he traveled throughout these cities and these villages, that the reason he was doing that was not to stay in one and not go to the other ones, but the reason for him doing that is so that he could preach to all people possible the good news, the glad tidings of the kingdom of heaven. That's, Jesus said, that's why I'm here. It's necessary. I have to go because I have to preach. I have to proclaim. Luke 9, 22 is another passage that is noteworthy. Jesus will make this statement, Luke 9, 22, another interesting uh, or very important, I should say, context. I would suggest to you that what's happening in Luke 9, verse 18 to 20, especially when you look at it from the standpoint of the entirety of the life of Christ as presented by all four gospel accounts, that this is a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Because what happens here, at least to my eyes, is that once he has this conversation with Peter and the apostles uh, at uh, Capernaum, he begins to sort of shift his, he shift gears. And from this point forward, he will focus more on developing the faith and the vision and so on of the twelve, not to the complete neglect of the multitudes and the crowds, but he'll pay more attention to the twelve from this point forward than what he has seemingly prior to this point. And so with that thought in mind, notice first what Luke tells us he told them in verse 21. The Son of Man, what? must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Think about this. What do we know about the Jewish expectation of the Messiah? What was it? To put it neatly, the Jewish expectation of the Messiah was a king, a physical king, someone who's going to come and pop in circumstance and rule and uh, take them out from under the hand of Rome and exalt them back to the days of Solomon and David and so on. But the last thing that would have been on the mind of the Jews, really anybody in the ancient world, was that a Messiah, a king, a ruler is going to, Luke 9 verse 22, suffer and be rejected by his own people and be killed 
and then be raised again on the third day? And although this is all contrary to anything that humans might, uh, might conjure up, Jesus says, this must happen. It is necessary. It has to happen. Luke 13, verse 33. Jesus says, Luke 13, actually verse 31 to 33. On that very day, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus, of all people, saying, Get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus' answer is this, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I'll be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. There are a couple of things that are interesting about these three verses. One of them is what Jesus says about Herod. He calls him a fox. And uh, there's a couple of ways, really, that that could be taken. Either it has to do with Herod being sly and conniving, which certainly he was, or it's Jesus' way of saying Herod is a nobody because a fox was insignificant. If you really want to think about animals that are representative of kings, you think about what? Maybe a lion, for example. Herod is not a lion. Herod is a fox. So he may be sly and he may be conniving. He's also insignificant. And the point of this, and with what Jesus says in verse number 33, I must journey today and tomorrow because it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Number one, Jerusalem represents the headquarters of a religious group of people who are more interested in preserving their own power than listening to God. Jesus will die in Jerusalem. He knows it. It, it must be that way. But second, no threat from Herod, the fox, be it sly or insignificant or both, is going to detract from what must happen. Now, there are several other passages throughout Luke that mention this as well. I'm going to give them to you so that you can write them down. Luke 19.5, why must Jesus go into the house of, um, why must he go into the house of, of Zacchaeus and eat with him? Well, the answer is in Luke 19.10, because the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Luke 22 and verse number 37, Jesus will make uh, this statement. He will say, um, I say to you that uh, this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end, a desire, a goal, if you will. It's all coming, there's a point to it all is the idea. Notice the word must. And with that passage, messianic prophecy comes to mind. Again, remember, must has to do with conformity to a plan, a submission to the will of God. We read about all of that in messianic prophecy. And Jesus says, I am fulfilling that which is written. It must be the case. Luke 24, verse 7. Luke 24, verse 26. Luke 24, verse 44. Again, Luke 24, 7, 26, 44. Luke 24, 7, Jesus says, the Son of Man, uh, he is not, this is after his resurrection. And uh, the angel reminds them of what Jesus said. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of uh, sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise again. Verse 26, 
Jesus said, ought not the Christ, as he's speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, ought not the Christ have suffered these things and to uh, have entered into his glory? Then verse number 44, the scriptures are opened. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all must be fulfilled, which was written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Notice the emphasis in chapter 24. Luke is wrapping up this, not just the book, but he's wrapping up this theme of must, of necessity. Jesus throughout the book has made these statements to let us know that he understands that he is not here on earth doing all of this by some whim. That he's not here doing all of this, it's not a touch and feel sort of thing, you know. We'll see how it all turns out. He is here because there is a plan. He is here because God has a desire and he is here to fulfill it. And notice the emphasis on that in Luke 24 where three times we are pointed back to the scripture, Old Testament scripture. What Old Testament scripture said about the Messiah and who he was going to do and what he was going to do and Jesus reminds them, don't you remember? Why are you surprised? This is what it said This is what you should have expected. So what do I learn from this word must? Well, first and foremost, the most obvious thing, Jesus was dedicated to carrying out the Father's will. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, Luke 9, 51, and he let no one distract him from carrying out the plan, the reason why he was here, Luke 13, verse 31 to 33. So this word must is in essence a divine imperative. It is an expression from the lips of our Lord which reminds us that, or which tells us rather, that he understood the necessity of being obedient to the will of God. It ought to bring passages like Philippians 2.8 to mind. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Or Hebrews 5 and verse number 8, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And his obedience is our example. So the question that we have to ask ourselves as we look at how Jesus was compelled to fulfill the will of the Father is how dedicated am I to fulfilling the will of the Father? And am I compelled to do that in the same way that Jesus was? One last passage. Look at Acts 4, verse 12. Remember that Luke and Acts really, part one, part two of the same book. Because Luke, of course, is the author of both. And in a familiar passage to us, Acts 4, verse 12 we're going to find a familiar word. We read in Acts 4.12, Nor is there salvation in any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's the same word that we find in those 13 passages in Luke. It's the same idea. The emphasis is it is necessary. It can't be any other way. If a person is going to be saved, how will it be done? Through what or through whom? Through Jesus Christ. In his name, by his authority, coming to God through him, like Jesus said of himself, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, of course. But this passage should take us back, at least in our minds, to the book of Luke. 
and how we see salvation for all mankind, our first word salvation, our second word humanity, that is made possible because Jesus, our third word must, Jesus understood the necessity of carrying out the will of God to make salvation possible. That's the end of our study this evening. Hope this was helpful. Appreciate your attention. I'm looking forward, Lord willing, to our study next Sunday evening. It is another word that uh, you might quickly glance over. But the word that we're going to study is a very important word in our summarizing of Luke in five words. I'll let you think about why I overemphasize the word, word, so many times in that uh, last statement. And then maybe you can figure out what our word will be next Sunday evening. We're going to offer the Lord's invitation. It may be that there's someone here tonight that has a desire to respond, a need to respond, perhaps to obey the gospel, to become a Christian. We stand ready and willing to assist you in doing that. Maybe you are a Christian this evening, but uh, perhaps there's something in your life that you would like for us to help with or to uh, pray with you and for you uh, to the Lord so that that thing might be rectified. We'd love to do it. Please come forward and let your need be known.